This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Do you want to be rich? It seems like every infomercial starts that way, right? Do you want to be rich? Most people's answer would be yes. Very few people would go, no, I would never want more resources than I have right now. Uh, it's, it makes sense on one level, right? If we're dealing with any number of issues, we're dealing with financial issues, health issues, things uh, that, that in, in which or with which money could solve a lot. And it makes perfect sense then to want to increase our capacity for resources and increase our capacity to acquire uh, more things. Most people want to be rich. If you don't believe me, look at the things in which we find our entertainment. Look at the people that we seem to want to know more about. Uh, it's interesting. We will spend any number, any amount of money, we will spend any amount of hours to just stay up on what rich people are doing with their lives. Studies have shown that even names, I think this was in the book Freakonomics, and it walks through the way certain names walk, uh, move their way through certain communities. And what they found was that at one point, whatever the names were of the wealthiest people in, in, in America, whatever they were at a certain point in time, roughly 20 years later, those become the most common names in the middle and lower class strata of the country. We have always looked up to the wealthy because we hope that something in their example will commend itself to us so that we can emulate their lives and their successes. That's why whenever someone makes it big, whenever someone makes tons of money, they, we, that's the person that we want to mentor us. And it assumes that people have their wealth because of this idea of meritocracy, this idea that they've gotten it because everything they've done has been above board and they've earned it. And so if I can learn their formula for earning things above board, I'll have the same success. We love to the idea of being rich. We lust after riches and we idolize the rich. How much do they make? That's the reason why we'll have lists of, you know, who has the largest net worth. And when the richest man in the world gets a divorce, we want to know uh, how his assets are being divided. And what will that mean for the number two person? And what will it mean for those who are looking up to them? Because that, that's our hero. That's our idol. That's our inspiration. It is also, and I'll just be very candid, it's also the truth that we look up to the wealthy, even in the church. And we hold people who are wealthy, in many ways, we hold them higher. We put them on a pedestal in ways we would never, for those who are in a middle or low income strata, we, we just wouldn't do that. How do I know this? I can tell you that as a church planter, there has always been, and I think most church planters, folks who have started churches will tell you, much like folks who have started businesses, when you start an organization and you're not starting it with your own money because you don't have it and you need resources to get this thing off the ground, there's a sense in which you have to sell yourself and your idea to the wealthier folks. And, and we get that. Part of that is, yes, if you have something that's worthy of investing, you should be able to sell that idea. But it becomes more problematic because now, especially within church culture, once you start to uh, build something and you have people, wealthy people who have uh, given, uh, the wealthier people oftentimes will feel like that that has given them a voice and or a vote, meaning influence. And what wealth and riches do is it buys you influence. But there are two questions you have to ask about wealth. One. How do you get it or what did you do to attain it? Because they're the, the scriptures we're going to go into are going to walk into that. And the second question is, what do you do to maintain it? 
because because honestly, how you attain it is one thing, and there are plenty of examples where people have attained wealth in ways that are not above board, and many times ways that are sinful. But now that they've attained it, we get to look up to them and go, well, you're not so bad because I need something from you. And then there is what do people do to retain and maintain it? Because that also speaks to some issues of the heart. It's interesting that when uh, we talk about wealth, we are more inclined to go, Lord, I just want, uh, I want wealth and, and these are the reasons why. Or I've talked to people who say, I just know I'm meant to be a millionaire or a billionaire. I know it. God's calling on my life is to be wealthy. There's nowhere in scripture where that is looked at as a calling. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Bible has more warnings uh, to, uh, directed towards the wealthy than he does direct to the poor. There are more areas of correction and instruction and rebuke for the rich than you see for the poor. And why is that? Well, just but before I even get into our passage in James, there's a passage in Proverbs that we uh, quote sometimes in, in part that speaks a lot to not just what God thinks about riches, because the issue isn't truly riches, but it speaks to the state of our heart when riches are involved. In other words, you might feel like that, man, the Bible, God seems to be really hard on the rich and he seems to be really hard on the riches. But truthfully, what God says is it's not that I'm hard on the rich. It's that riches are incredibly hard on you. Riches are incredibly hard on our heart. And if you don't believe me, listen to the wisdom in Proverbs, Proverbs 30, verse seven. The word says, Two things I ask of you, don't deny them to me before I die. This is him basically saying, please make sure you give me these two things before I die. Keep falsehood and deceitful words far from me and give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you saying, who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and still profaning the name of my God. What is God saying here? Before we even get into how James talks to the rich, because he does, he puts the rich on trial, the, the way that he's been putting uh, believers on trial throughout this entire letter. Remember this series, Faith Works. In other words, how do we evaluate your faith? You evaluate your faith based on what works emanate out of you. What do you put on display? What do, and that's authentic. And really what James is doing is he's putting us on trial. He puts us on trial with the words that we speak. He puts us on trial with the ways that we're generous. He puts us on trial, not all, not only on what we give, but he puts us on trial based on what we keep and why. So why does that matter? Why do riches have such a toll on our heart? Because ultimately the idea of riches is rooted in resources and resources anywhere you live on this earth resources are limited. And so whenever resources are limited, there are going to be major sinful struggles that ensue. Why? Because every single issue, every single feud throughout recorded human history has had some connection to what you might call the landlord and the landless, the haves and the have nots. Why are there have nots? Because there's resources that are limited. So when we talk about riches, We've got to talk about resources because resources give influence, they give power, they give privilege. Those are things that we want to attain and those are things that we want to retain at the expense of our brothers and our sisters. And that's why it's sinful. That's why it's dangerous. And that's why we need to be checked. And so when you look at what James is doing, James is, we're, we're coming to this last chapter in James. And James, again, the most practical book in all the New Testament. James, like he's done before, He's taking time to put believers on trial. He's making a claim, making an accusation, bringing a claim, and then bringing the evidence that is commensurate with what it would take in order to get a guilty verdict. Because he wants us to see this is what you're prone to do. This is what you're guilty of. And this is what we still need to be redeemed from. So when, with that in mind, think about this because when James takes us through this, just these first six verses, 
You don't normally hear a sermon preached on these verses because most of the time we don't want to make the wealthy among us too uncomfortable. I struggle. I fr- it's a very frustrating thing being in ministry where you where in order to get a thing off the ground, you have to rely on the resources of others. Because oftentimes people who have resources, if they don't vote with their voice, they can vote with their pocketbook. I don't like the color of the chairs. I voiced my concerns about the color of the chairs. You have not gotten said chairs. I think I found a reason why I think I need to find a new church. I might not tell you it's the chairs. It might be something else. But ultimately, I'm so used to getting the things that I feel like I need. And maybe I've convinced myself that God says that I need these things. And so I, I, I genuinely feel like that something's not being met that God says I should have. And so I'm going to move on. In many ways, uh, we have done this thing in this, in this country, especially and in our culture, in order to not make the wealthy feel too uncomfortable. Sometimes we'll make the wealthy feel like they're the ones that are, that are oppressed so that they'll be more inclined to, 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 to lend their ear to us and lend their money to us. Did you know that there's something right now, there's a whole industry of therapy called wealth therapy. And it's this idea that the wealthy are, are dealing with such oppression. When people are clamoring about justice, the wealthy begin to feel like they're attacked. And so there are lots of therapists making a lot of money off of a lot of very wealthy people, pretty much helping them deal with the struggle of feeling under attack. And I seem very facetious here, but I feel like most of you, if not all of you, can see the silliness and the folly therein. And so James is going to prove just how fallacious that kind of thinking is, just how illogical that thinking is, and frankly, just how ungodly that kind of thinking is. So James chapter five, the brother of Jesus, showing us this first pastor of the church in Jerusalem, bringing all of us to task showing all the things of which we are capable and of which we are likely guilty, calling us out. So let this be, I pray, whether you are in this camp or whether you want, you are aspiring to be in this camp, make sure that we know what it means. If I were to be rich, here are the things that we need to avoid on a heart level and even on a hands level. James chapter five, beginning with verse one, come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth is rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out. And the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God for it. This is a passage that is also very difficult because when you're doing, if you're trying to do the text service as a pastor, as a, as, a, as a practitioner of the word of God, of what it means to rightly divide the scriptures, there, there's real work we have to put in. We have to walk through context. We have to walk through the languages. We have to walk through what the theme is and what the genre is and what's the actual purpose. What's the message here? What are the problems that are happening? This is one area where I believe that many pastors, many Christians in America, We really are, we mishandle this passage. I think in many ways, uh, we are negligent in our duty to this passage because we feel a need to protect the wealthy in our congregations. Why do I say that? Well, because if you look at several commentaries and several uh, preachers will take this passage and go, well, you know, I just want to make sure that, that, that I assuage any potential concerns for the wealthy in my congregation. So I want to make sure you know that this isn't talking about believers who are wealthy because uh, believers who are wealthy would never do this. This is James talking to unbelievers who are wealthy here. That's all. He's just talking to those folks. That pretty much lets everybody else off the hook because everybody can go, well, 
I know I believe in Jesus. I accepted him as my Lord and Savior into my heart and I've gotten baptized and uh, I definitely give and I tithe and I give money and I do these things and I haven't harmed anyone. And so this can't possibly be referring to me. Thank you for letting me off the hook. But the truth of the matter is that everything that James has written and that James has said here, he's directing it to Christians. He's directing it to believers, at least professing believers. And so this should be This should be a call to all of us. Lord, I profess with my mouth that I believe these things. But if this is evidential, this is evidentiary in my life, if these evidences manifest themselves in my life and I'm having to take inventory and I see that's the case, then I need to do some real heart checking. I need to do some real repenting because there may be an unhealthy relationship that I have with riches, whether in my desire for them or in my possession of them. And so when you look at this, these first few verses, James is really talking to believers and he's trying to let these folks know, remember what's happening, right? We, are, we saw this in chapter one where James also calls out rich folks. He, he, he immediately calls them out again here because what's been going on, we know that there have been Christians that have been persecuted. And when you're persecuted, what is the primary way that you defend yourself? Your resources. Either you have the resources to get away, either you have the resources to hire defense, either you have the resources to be able to protect your family. And so, of course, when we we all do this, the moment that uh, we have a natural disaster coming, we trust in whatever resources we have to protect us from that natural disaster. Maybe I had the money to be able to purchase a home if I live near a coastal area to be able to purchase a home that's high enough, fortified enough off the ground so that flooding wouldn't affect. Or maybe I have something that where I was able to buy things that could have reinforced walls in such a way that they wouldn't cave in when sudden hurricanes come. We trust in our resources to protect ourselves. They did, too. So there's no question then that there would have been people who were wealthy among these Christians who, when these, when this persecution's happening, well, I know that I can take care of myself. Well, I know I can trust in that. I know I can look at my brother and sister who don't have, but this is survival of the fittest, baby. This is what we're doing. This is social Darwinism at its finest. If you weren't able to uh, take advantage of the same opportunities that I had, and now you're having to suffer, that's on you. James is talking to Christians who have taken uh, their wealth and you'll see this, uh, they've hoarded it. They've, they've held on to it. Look at what he says. Look again. He says, come now, you rich people, weep and wail over miseries that are coming onto you. This is a big deal because ultimately James is saying, you need to weep and wail because judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Consequences are coming because of how hard riches have been on your heart. And the way that you've reacted and responded or failed to react and failed to respond. Then he says, he makes the claim. Then he proves his claim. Here's his evidence. Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored or hoarded up treasure in the last days. Do you get the picture that James is painting here? Do you understand what he means when he says that your clothes are moth eaten, your wealth has rotted and that uh, your gold has has corroded? He talks about the corrosion of their of their riches. And when he says that your wealth is rotted and he he's painting these pictures, this picture here of what it means to truly hoard. Hear me. Having things saved up is never sin, right? Scripture shows us plenty of times the examples of the ant and the sluggard and what it means to work hard to save up to prepare for certain things that are coming where you're going to need those resources. Nothing wrong with that. That is great. This whole story of Joseph is about storing up for an oncoming impending danger. Nothing wrong with storing, nothing wrong with saving. But there is something wrong with hoarding here. So how does he define hoarding? Well, look at the things specifically that he highlights that have been uh, corrupted and and corroded. He talks about clothes being moth-eaten. He talks about gold and silver corroding. What, What is he really saying? 
He's basically saying that your, your collecting uh, has exceeded uh, your ability to consume. That's what hoarding is. When you collect something that exceeds your capacity to consume it, you have way more than you need and far more than you even want. Why? Because the rest of it is unused. Why would clothes become moth-eaten? Because they've stayed in the same position for so long that moths are able to come, take up residence, and start feasting. You have far more than you need and far more than you actually want because you're not using the rest of it. And because you're doing that, you're robbing your neighbors of things that they actually need. You're hoarding. You're not just saving. You're, you're hoarding. You're collecting in a way that exceeds your capacity to consume. And anything that exceeds that is what should be given and even some of the things that we want, if we know that other people have need, we should be able to give. But this is what hoarding does. Why? Because I know resources are limited. Deep in my mind, in the recesses of my mind, I know that resources are limited. And it's just this, this crazy kind of ape-brained hoarding, I mean, hairy-brained idea that truly gets to a place where your mind is going, I've got to hold on to this. i got to keep it. I can't let it go. Because if I do, I might not get it back. You see, what hoarding does is it says, I trust myself more with riches than I do trust God without riches. I trust myself with my stuff far more than I trust God when I don't have stuff. I'm relying on myself. That's what hoarding does. That's what it means to hold on to these riches in such a way that you now have become someone that is actually opposing your brother and sister and not actually uplifting and loving them. So when you think about this, this, this is a form of oppression. Don't, this is not a shock, right? This, this idea of rust and corrosion. Yes, people, if you are a metallurgist and you know full well, gold, pure gold doesn't corrode. We get that. This is a picture. This is a, he's trying to make this point in saying anything that you have, right? There are several metals. Gold is one of the few. I think it's uh, gold, platinum, and chromium are the only ones that when they're pure, they don't corrode, they don't rust, they can't oxidize. But the majority of metals do. And the point there is that when you allow something to just sit unused, you let most metal just sit in the air unused and not cared for, it will rust. It's going without being used. It's not being cared for. And so there's this idea that you've got folks, these riches, this picture of almost uh, when I was a kid, there was a cartoon called uh, DuckTales. And you had this really wealthy uncle of Huey, Dewey and Louie. And he was uh, uh, Uncle, Uncle, what was he? Uncle Scrooge? Yeah, Uncle Scrooge. And Uncle Scrooge had this huge, massive vat of gold coins. And he loved his gold coins. You rarely, if ever, uh, saw him taking those gold coins and doing something good for people. Once in a while, there might be something nice he might do. But for the most part, he just got this big vat of gold coins. All this money that he's made is just sitting there. It's sitting there completely useless. But there is one use he has for it. He loves to have a diving board, jumps off the diving board into the gold coins which according to physics is crazy because he probably would have broken his neck just landing right there, but that's a whole, that'd be really grisly. That doesn't make for good cartoons. But at the end of the day, that is the picture that you should have of what it means to be hoarding. I have all this stuff. And there's not enough rain in the world to create a rainy day wherein I would need all of this. The floods of Noah would not have created a need for all of this wealth. And, and yet that is what we are hoping to be. That's what we look up to. And God warns you and says, don't want this. Be very careful because these riches are going to be impossibly hard for you. That's why passages like it's it's easier for uh, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. It doesn't mean rich people don't go to heaven. It just means rich people are going to struggle with this temptation to hoard in such a way that says I trust myself more than I trust God. And if I trust myself more than I trust God, then I will love myself more than I love God and more than I love you, which will make it easier for me to oppress you, which will make it easier for me to ignore you, which will make it easier to do this very this second thing that James points out as a point of evidence that they have been guilty of this type of hoarding. In verse four, look, look at the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields. They, they, they cry out and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So 
So not only have uh, they hoarded, but what happens when you hoard? When you hoard, you eventually then get to a place where you, you've already acknowledged either in, uh, implicitly and possibly even explicitly, these resources are limited. I don't know how much of this I'm going to have left. I don't know how, what, how easy I can lose this, or maybe I do know how easy I can lose this. So I've got to cling to this and store up as much as possible. Well, then if I, this is where you have to wonder, what am I doing to retain and maintain my money? If I'm a business owner and I have a company and I want to keep more of the money that is brought in, then I will do things to exploit my workers. This is just the, 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 the nature of the heart. This isn't like, well, some people choose to do that and some people don't. No, unrestrained, this is what you are prone to do. This is what I am prone to do. If you look at the history of labor laws in this country, the primary reason why certain folks have had to create organizations to ensure that workers are paid fairly is because if you leave it to the folks who have all of the resources, they will never on their own. You, I, we will never on our own just give people more money, give people resources. And if we can get away with paying them nothing, we will. Look, we do that on, on, a, on a level for folks coming out of college. Hey, we, you know the best, the biggest, in my opinion, yes, there are benefits to what I'm getting ready to say, but one of the biggest scams, too, is kind of the unpaid internship. I'll just throw my own opinion here. It's, it's such an interesting thing because, yes, you get incredible experience and you get incredible hands-on opportunities to learn a thing, but it seems to only really work out best for those who already have resources because they can go without while getting this experience. But for people who are from lower middle class or poor, they can't afford to take those kinds of unpaid internships. And if they do, it's at great cost to themselves and or their families. And so many say, I just can't do that, which means they don't get the requisite experience in order to work at this higher level for their job. So those who are wealthier will more than likely be able to get the necessary experience uh, in those situations where meritocracy is at play. Do you understand? It's it's this this is this idea that people are going to all of, all of a sudden on their own. Hey, as, a, as an organization or as a business or as a business owner, or as a wealthier person, um, if I am left to give more of my money on my own and not uh, be uh, and not be told or compelled to care for other people, then if people just leave that to me, we'll be fine. I'll on my own be able to care for people without someone telling me that I have to do it. Well, God disagrees with you because he's having to remind all of us to do this. Why is he making this warning? Anything that the scriptures warn you about are things that you are prone to do. Thou shalt not lie. Why? Because you're prone to lie. Thou shalt not murder. Why? Because you are prone to, mur to, to, to murder. Get, get mad enough. Be in the right kind of situation. You'd be amazed at what you might be prone to do. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Why? Well, based on your relationship to a person, you might end up giving false testimony because you want to protect them or yourself. All of these things in Scripture are there, not because there are things that, uh, you know, in, our, in a rare situation you might do. These are things that your heart has a proclivity toward. So so let's not act like that. It's beyond most Christians to be a part of organizations that could exploit their workers. We have to be very careful when we think about this, because what you had, you know, he'll use examples here. We see it throughout scripture. There are examples where people would have workers in the field. They, and you've seen this even in our own history, where people are working specifically in agrarian type industrial settings uh, or in agrarian societies. You'll see situations where folks are saying, hey, uh, you saw this happen even after slavery. You saw folks that would who were previously been slaves living in the south, living on the same land that their relatives and their ancestors had been uh, had been slaves. And when folks were free, they were still living on the same land. They, there was nothing left for them. They, they, you know, they said you're free, but there were no other resources left. There weren't jobs that were there. Certain things were promised, the whole 40 acres and a mule, but that was pulled out pretty quickly uh, after Lincoln's assassination. And Andrew Johnson uh, uh, changed and pulled back a lot of those uh, uh, restrictions and a lot of those government mandates were pulled away. So you've got folks just hanging around. They need to find a way to make money. So they got to work this same land uh, where they had previously and their relatives had been slaves. So they're working the same land and they're working hard. They know the land better than anybody else. The former slave owners who are now these plantation owners, they're never going to find better workers than these. 
And so there are these deals that are made. Hey, you work the land and you will get a percentage of what's brought out. Now, I, you know, you got to cover uh, these costs. And, and the farmer would say, I've got to cover my costs. But whatever's left at the end, at the end of the, uh, of the harvest season, you'll get this percentage. I'll get this percentage. So this was called sharecropping. Well, what happened? A lot of times folks who were sharecropping they would get to the end of the harvest waiting for their percentage. And the, and the landowner, the plantation owner would go, hey, we had a hard harvest season this year, so uh, I'm not going to have anything for you this time. You know, the harvest just wasn't great, and I had to cover all my costs. At the end of the day, I, I just don't have enough to give you. And it happened over and over, or a very diminished number. So folks were still living in a functional form of slavery, still working for little or no pay with no recourse. This is who we are. This is not who they were. This is who we are. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, Motown, the place where so many of the most popular cars in the world were made, creating incredible wealth for that city. At one point, Detroit was looked at as the Paris of the United States. I know that sounds shocking today, but back then it was great. They had the greatest education system at one point. They had the first roads, the first malls, all of this beautiful wealth, in some ways, almost obscenely wealthy. But you had all of this wealth that, that was there, the big three. And there were far more car, comp uh, car companies than just the three at the time. But you before they all consolidated. But you had wealth everywhere. You had folks that were coming, people who were formerly the sharecroppers that we talked about. Several black folks from the South moved to places like Detroit. Why? Because there were incredible jobs opening up and they didn't have to share crop anymore. They could go and be paid wages that they would never have been paid here. So they move up. My family was no exception move from the South, move up North, move into these places and get excited to finally be able to make some real money only to find out that when they get there, the owners of these companies are picking and choosing who gets paid certain things and who doesn't get paid. Some people will work and get paid pennies. Some people work and get paid more. So now you had a huge battle between wealthier whites and poorer whites, because that was also a major issue. And now you've got these other people coming from the South looking for jobs. Resources are limited. What do we do? Well, what happened is the, many of your poor whites, they were creating organizations to demand fair pay because they were being treated horribly. But they for sure weren't going to allow these folks who had just moved up to be a part of it because they had resources to get. So what are we saying here? We are all subject to this this really uh, uh, scary, sinful, broken hearted approach to resources I need to have. I either need to maintain and I figure out who I can exploit in order to maintain or I need to attain and I figure out who I can oppress in order to attain. This is the reason why people began to unionize, because they needed to be able to find a way to at least ensure that the natural proclivity of the hearts of the wealthy, which could be any of us were, were we to be wealthy, is to hoard and to exploit. So you need things in place to ensure that people are not exploited. That should not be lost on a believer of Jesus. That should be our natural. That should be what we how we respond. If I'm a follower of Jesus, then I'm sure I'm, I believe what God says about where my heart is likely to go, which means I believe in what it is that Jesus has redeemed me from and what he's redeemed me to. What does he redeem me to? Well, if I'm wealthy, I should say the same thing. He's redeemed me to a place where hoarding would be anathema, where hoarding would never be true of my own heart, where exploiting would never be true of my own heart, where Finding a way to maximize the bottom line, I see the danger in that because that means I could potentially harm other people, other workers or other other people in my community. So I am OK with taking a little bit less in profit in order to ensure that others have. That's the mentality of a follower of Jesus. This has nothing to do with what political camp you're in, what economic philosophy you hold to. If you live in the kingdom of Jesus, then that should take precedent over all of those other things. And if it does, you cannot stand there and say hoarding is still godly. Exploiting people, that's just what they have. Listen, you know, one thing that we do as Christians to make it OK to exploit and to make it OK to exclude. We have, quote, passages that we think have good biblical fervor and they they convey God's mind on a thing. And we leave out the, the why we, we'll, we'll quote the what in the scripture, the what in the scripture and ignore the why. What do we quote? We love to quote. Well, the Bible says that the poor will, will be with you always. 
They're going to be here. So I don't know why you keep trying to come up with pro- programs and ways to, to, to help lift the poor from their plight. The poor are going to be there always. Well, there's several, in, several insinuations that come out when, we, when folks talk this way. The first is the poor are there because likely they put themselves there. And since they put themselves there, they just need to learn how to pull themselves up. And the, the, the assumption is that those who are not poor are there because they pulled themselves into their own wealth, which is not always the case. And in a lot of cases, not at all. And yet uh, in, in this, the way we'll look at this, we'll almost think that God is then sanctioning poverty by saying, well, the poor is going to be here always. So what are you going to do? Because we assume that God is prescribing poverty, but he's not. He's describing poverty and he's not just describing it. He gives us several places in scripture that gives us the why. Yes, you can quote the what good for you. Can you quote the why and quote it accurately? Because more often than not, yes, there are places where the scripture talks about laziness and when it talks about what it means to not be a sluggard. But in more places, it talks about what it means to exploit the worker. In more places, it talks about what it means to exploit the poor. How how do we know this? Listen to these passages. Proverbs 22, whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or give to the rich will only come to poverty. Proverbs 14, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Uh, Proverbs 22, do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate for the Lord will plead their cause and rob the life of those who rob them. Proverbs 19, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. This is a big one. Ezekiel twenty two twenty nine. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. How do you think about Sodom and Gomorrah? Listen to this, because this actually tells you what their actual sin was. Let this sit in your spirit for a minute. He says, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. That was the sin that Ezekiel highlights, the the preeminent sin. There's plenty of other issues, the preeminent sin. What that type of comfort and wealth and desire for uh, uh, luxury does to our hearts will then impact how we will treat other people in some heinous ways. First Timothy six, as for the rich in this present present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. And finally, the very words of Jesus, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Y'all, this is, this is not a, a one-off. This idea that the the, the scriptures have made it clear over and over and over again, just how difficult riches can be on us. He's not trying to be hard on the rich. He's making, making you and I know, making you and me, we need to be aware of just the dangers that creep at the door of riches when our hearts are not right. And what the, the type of diagnostic checks we need to keep doing if and when we come into possession of said riches. And so uh, this idea of exploiting, look at the very, as he gets to the end of this, not just did you uh, withhold from the workers who mowed your fields, not only did you either uh, withhold funds or lower funds and then tell them sorry about your luck, because of course they don't have the levers of government and the levers of military protection to enforce the things that you promised them. So they're just left out to dry. They can't do anything else. That's exploitative. But he doesn't just say that. Then he says, uh, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. So it's not just that you left your riches just dormant. You took some of your riches and ensured that you had for yourselves. You made sure that you took the things that you had, the things that could have easily helped create real uh, a, a, a way of living well for your brother and sister. 
ways to make sure that they, in this context, would have been safe from persecution. Ways that uh, whatever the context is, whatever, whatever the issues of the day are, the primary issues that people are facing during that time, you had a way to help alleviate that and you didn't. Instead, you chose to live luxuriously. The same story that Rich ran in Lazarus. You're living in this major house. You got a gate all around to help protect and hoard what it is you have. You see this poor man there day after day after day fighting with dogs for food. You might think that seems so harsh. Why is that man not in paradise? Were the riches itself the proof that the man was sinful? No. It was his relationship to his riches that proved that he was sinful. It was his relationship, his reliance on his riches that proved that he was sinful. How do you know he relied? Because he hoarded, he indulged, and he exploited. This is where we are prone to go. Be careful what you wish for. Because if you want riches, you need to also say, and Lord, I also don't want to be a hoarder. And I also don't want to be an indulger. And I also don't want to be an exploiter. And finally, I don't want to be an oppressor or a destroyer. After I fatten myself up in a day of slaughter, what happens next? You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. Y'all, this is just a very logical progression of what happens when I want to protect my stuff. I know that resources are limited. When people start to decry and cry out for justice, I start clutching, right? I start holding my resources closer to me because the moment people cry for justice, that means I might have to give up some of my stuff. I prefer to invest. I never want to divest. But honestly, walking with Jesus is a walk of divestiture. It's not a walk of financial investment. It's not a walk of, of, of ways in which I can enlarge my power and enlarge my privilege alone. If my power and privilege is enlarged, then let it be for the sake of those that don't have. So that means I have this privilege. This is what the Christian should be doing. If I get rich, if I get wealthy, in what way should I be divesting myself for the, for, for the, for the sake of those who don't have? It's not how much I get to keep. How much do I get to give away and why? How much do I get to protect and why? How much do I get to build up those who are not? How much do I, uh, can I practice what true religion is? What it means to care for the widow? What it means to care for the, uh, for the immigrant? What it means to care for the poor? What it means to care for the needy? That should be what moves us. But what James is saying is, you, Christian, who have riches, this is not who you are fundamentally. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what needs to be redeemed. This is what needs to be changed. This is what needs to be bought back because you were born in this kind of sin. But Jesus came to buy you back. God gave his son as this recompense. He gave Jesus so that our sin would no longer have rule over us. We no longer have to be a slave to hoarding. I don't have to be a slave to exploiting. This is the excuse that people are often given. This is just people. This is what people do throughout the throughout history. This is what people have always done. It's always interesting to me that people who are Christians who love to talk about certain social ills that need to be cured and need to be fixed. And we love to uh, uh, support certain organizations that want to fix those ills. But when there are ills that are there that require us to give up something, now we're fatalists. Well, that's just the way the world is. That's just how people are. You can't change people. People are always going to fight over those kinds of things. That's just how things go. That won't change. So Jesus comes. So we pick and choose when it's time to care about justice. We pick and choose when it's time to be generous. We pick and choose when we should be mad about oppression and when we shouldn't or when we should even label it oppression. If it's inevitability, it's not really oppression. That's just the way the world is, except that's everything. Every sin, every social ill. It is an inevitability outside of Jesus. It is an inevitability outside of the, 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 the transformative work of the very spirit of God. So be very careful, because if that is your position, then you are internally inconsistent with what it is you claim to believe about Jesus. And you truly don't believe in Jesus. You can't, because if you do, then you believe it covers the entire gamut of the human experience and not just the things you've determined are far too inevitable to ever be sanctified.
This is what it means truly for our faith to work properly. This is why God calls. God says, whether you have riches, whether you do not. And Pastor Jen is going to talk a lot next week about what this looks like for those who have been oppressed and those who have been poor. But for, the, for those that are rich, I only gave you a small percentage of all the passages in Scripture that talk about what happens for the rich and what happens to the rich and how our hearts change when we have riches. So this is God's call to us. God's call is if your faith is truly working the way it should, then you should be looking, you should be racing, you should be investigating, you should be obsessed with how to divest yourself of privilege, how to divest yourself of certain riches, specifically those that can really be hoarded and, and nothing will be done with. You should be finding ways to be able to empower, to be able to uplift, to be able to protect. What does it mean to use our influence, not just money, using our influence and our platforms to care about those who are poor and are needy. Not just because we're just such a bleeding heart person that just cares about people. No, it's because we are aware that the way of the world says it is okay to hoard, it is okay to indulge at the expense of others, which is exploitative and ultimately destroys. That last part of that verse didn't say this. When I feel like you are a threat to my riches, when I feel like you are a threat to the things that I have, I will crush you. I will use the levers of government. I will use the levers of the judiciary. I will use the levers of the military. I will use the levers of the police force in order to stop you, in order to crush you, and possibly even to kill you because I love me and I love my stuff. That's who we are, but that's not who we're called to be. This is a part of what kingdom living looks like. So if Jesus is gonna redeem us, Jesus is redeeming all of us, all the parts of us, not just the parts that don't require us to give up something, not just the kind of discipleship that doesn't cost us something. Every area in which we follow Jesus should cost us something. So if you are wealthy, if you are rich, and there's, we can talk about how we measure that, you need to be asking yourself, what is it costing me? If I'm a Christian, this should be costing me something. What is it costing me? If my life is far too comfortable, far so comfortable, I can't imagine what anything costs me. I am likely exploiting somewhere. I'm likely indulging somewhere. Uh, one pastor put it so well years ago, and I love it. He says, what the gospel does, what happens in the kingdom, what God does, is he often comforts the afflicted and he afflicts the comfortable. You can't get any more comfortable than having so many, so much, so many resources that you don't even know what to do with it. And so where is the genuine affliction? Not affliction so that you can beat yourself on the back with self-flagellation, but affliction in such a way that says, I'm so convicted because I realize that I need to be giving and sharing so that I'm not indulging and exploiting. So do you want to be rich? Why? That's the question. And if you are rich, what do you do with it? How did you attain it? How are you maintaining it? Is it done in a way that says that I'm a kingdom citizen? Or is it a way that, that says that I am the king of my own castle, that I am the captain of my own ship? Because if that is the case, God says, prepare for judgment. Because this call to love God and to love the neighbor, Jesus said there's nothing more important, which means every single part of your life you should be asking, how do I love God and how do I love my neighbor? If we don't do that, I know we don't like talking about judgment. I know we don't like talking about things that make me feel bad, but God cares so much about his image in this earth that he does bring judgment. This is spiritual warfare, y'all. This is not a, just a nice little you know, intellectual exercise in benevolence. What it means to be a kingdom citizen matters so much because God's image in this world matters so much. So if we're gonna make much of him, may we make much of him in our riches, in our desire to attain. May we make much of him in our desire to care for, to love and protect. Let's pray. Father, you have given us uh, so much in this walk through James. You have pointed out so many areas in which our faith does not display, does not manifest your heart, does not manifest your word. It manifests our own selfishness, our own self-aggrandizement, 
our own selfish ambition, our own self-indulgence. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, while we don't want to just be left in the shame for shame's sake, I do pray that we are left in a in a place where that that shame and that conviction and that compulsion moves us to a place where we are seeking not to be hoarders and indulgers and exploiters and destroyers. But I pray that we would be generous, that we would be lovers of people, that we would be protectors, that we would be advocates. Lord, whatever our platform is, whatever our riches are, let it be done with not a jealousy for stuff, but a jealousy for your glory, for your sake and for your people. And we know we can only do that through the power in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who came, lived perfectly, died, and through whose spirit, our ability to look like you, love like you, live like you is made possible. So Father, it is in that name, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's receive this promise. Even with all of the things we might feel in conviction and shame, Listen to this promise because it is only God. Remember, this is not built in pure meritocracy. We don't even have this ability to be able to attain holiness because of something we earned. It is something God does. He attained us. He maintains us. We obey. We follow. We walk. We get convicted and we walk. Faith and repentance. That's the two step we do with God. So listen to this promise from God. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. And may all of God's people be able to say, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.